on. I had the privilege of being on a trip to Katrina as well and with Preach Global. And I'd really encourage you, just like John said, it's a life-changing experience. It's a wonderful opportunity to minister to people. And as they say, they really are about restoring lives with hope as well as restoring people's lives just living. So let's pray and we'll look at the scriptures together this morning. Oh Lord God, we thank you so much for your grace toward us in Christ, for the scriptures that you've given to us that we may know you truly and follow you faithfully. And we pray this morning that you would guide our study in the book of Colossians. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our mini-series in the book of Colossians together about our life together in Christ. It's connected, uh, the reason we're doing this mini-series and taking a break from Luke is to focus a little more on our annual theme of contentment in Christ and what it's like to live together in a church. And so in Colossians 3, last week we looked at verses 1 to 4 and talked about how we are intent on eternal reality together because of what Jesus has done for us. Today we'll be looking at verses 5 to 11 about being renewed in the image of God, and next week we'll look at 12 to 17 where it talks about being a Christ-like community. Well, yeah, I noticed that one of our songs today, it said we changed us from sinner to saint. That's an interesting topic. Would you describe yourself more readily as a saint or as a sinner? And of course, there are two basic ways to answer this question. First of all, it's true, both and. We can say we're saints and sinners, and we can also say, we can also talk about it as an either or, that we're saint versus sinner. So they're both very important concepts to understand, is that uh, you know, Martin Luther, one of the reformers, said that we are simultaneously justified in Christ, yet we are sinful people. And so there's still this weakness of the flesh in us. We're not perfected people. But yet when we think about these two terms, saint or sinner, um, it's also very important to realize that maybe saint is a much better description of who we are in Christ. The term is used 62 times in the New Testament, and it was the Apostle Paul's favorite to talk about Christians because it testifies to the grace of God in our lives, that we've been justified, that we've been sanctified, that we're being sanctified as well in this process of life. And it shows that there's been a true break from sin in our lives. We've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we talk about these two terms and think about them maybe some more on our our own, we need to realize two twin truths. That is the power of God at work in our lives through the Holy Spirit, but also the true weakness and deception that is still present in us because we live in the flesh. Well, the biblical message is very clear that we're supposed to live like saints. We're not supposed to live like sinners because that's who we are in Christ. We've been made holy in Him. And we're to take sin and sanctification very seriously in our life because sin can hinder us from progress. And we should think about what our attitude is towards sin in our life. Has it become too casual, perhaps? You know, what's your approach uh, that you take to get rid of sin that you find in your life? Well, the power of the gospel is strong, and that's what we rely upon, the Holy Spirit, to continually make us transformed. Well, the Colossian Christians needed to learn to deal with their sin as well, and so do we. And in chapter 3, Paul is showing the supremacy of Christ in living life. Now, if you remember, we pointed out last week, you know, that there were a lot of false teachers in the 
Colossian region at the time, and they had their own plans for how Christians should become holy. And we looked at the impotence of their plans, the powerlessness of them, in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23 last week, because these people infiltrated the church and they would create extra rules that God didn't have, thinking that, oh, if you follow these extra rules, then you're going to be more holy. But they also promoted certain types of experiences that you had to have. And if you had these experiences, well, then you would be holier than the rest. And of course, the problem with all of these plans that they had was that they had lost the center, which is Jesus Christ. So let's read Colossians 3. I'll read Colossians 3, 5 through 11 to you. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so over these next two weeks, we're going to be learning from the book of Colossians about this pursuit for holiness in our lives. And there are really two actions that we'll be t- we're encouraged to take in the section we're reading today. That is to get rid of vices in our life. And in verses 12 to 17, it's to acquire virtues. Now that sounds like it's just another form of a religious moral reform program. But rather, it's not. It's a call to gospel transformation that only can take place in our lives by the Holy Spirit. As we just read in Colossians 3.10, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so in verses 5 to 11 this morning, the Apostle Paul is declaring the power of the gospel over sin. And so we see in verses 5 to 8 that we're supposed to get rid of all the sin in our lives. Because, in verses 9 through 11, we're now new people in Jesus Christ, and we're under renewal by God himself. Now, of course, as you've already figured out, this is going to take a lifetime to accomplish. But first, we need to get finished getting rid of all the sin of our lives. That's what he's talking about as he begins, put to death what is worldly in you. We're talking about the same thing that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. So in 6.19, it says, For just as you presented your members, talking about your whole body, your soul, your being, just as you used to present them to impurity in lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves for righteousness, resulting in sanctification. It's the same thing. In our passage this morning, you know, not all sins are mentioned, of course. That would be a very long list. But all the sins are implied by representation. And there's a selection made of two general categories. We see two lists here of five. And the first list are sins of consumption 
of your neighbor, consuming your neighbor. And the second list of sins are sins of destruction of our neighbor. Verse 8. So sins of consumption, verse 5, and sins of destruction in verse 8. And in the middle, we have two reasons why we should be doing what the apostle tells us. And these sins, as we read them, you see, oh, these typify the world in which we live and the way the world relates to one another. And they are not to typify the way a church lives or the way a church relates to people, even the way we relate to people in the world. So he begins then right away in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you or what is worldly in you. And that goes back to verse 2, if you just glance up there a minute, sort of the key imperative of that paragraph we looked at last week was, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so he's now explaining what this means. So don't be like this, and we're going to go through these five items here. So these five items, as we read them, um, refer to sins of sexual consumption, right, of your neighbor. We read about sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And so we get this list. So you'll notice that this list is actually moving from the more obvious or the overt to the more covert or the more hidden types of sexual sins. And so sexual immorality is, is a general reference to all forms of improper sexual activity, not just extramarital sex but all forms of sexual morality. Then when he gets to the next one, impurity, he's talking about loose living. He's talking about living a lifestyle of immodesty and flirtation. And then passion and lust goes into, or lust, the definitions, your translation might have different words there. But it's talking about being excited over the sensual or being a person who's sensual in the wrong places at the wrong time times and in the wrong ways. And finally, evil desire, something very internal that only a person themselves can know. Talking about debased or foul desires within us, especially the sexual ones that we want to play out. So these four are sexual sins. The fifth doesn't appear initially to fit into the list. It's unlike the other four, greed or covetousness. And the apostle says it's like idolatry, and that's because it worships things, and it worships more things. It worships things of the earth. And it doesn't necessarily have to be primarily referencing money, though it includes money. But it's talking about the arrogant and ruthless consumption of all other people and things as if they exist for our own benefit, as one scholar put it. It's similar to the sexual sins, you see, and then it wants more and finds satisfaction really in the earthly things, in the worldly systems, rather than in God himself. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we gratifying ourselves in the consumption of our neighbor? I mean, you know if you are. The Spirit of God testifies to you if that's the case. Well, put it to death, is what the Apostle is saying in verse 5. And now why should we do that? There are two basic reasons, and they're in the center of these two lists of five because they apply to both lists. And so we read in verses 6 and 7, because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's the first reason. And secondly, in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. 
So the first reason is because that's why God's wrath is coming, because people live like this and they sin like this. And the wrath of God that's being talked about here is both the wrath of God in the present life as well as the wrath of God to come in the future. And sometimes we see it come, His wrath take place now. Sometimes we're just going to be anticipating it coming later. And we should be afraid and repulsed by this type of behavior. These vices are hostile to our destiny in heaven. The second reason we should put to death these types of things in our life is because we've been converted from that lifestyle. That was the old you, in other words. You were a part of a new creation. We used to conduct ourselves that way. We used to be a part of the world system. But it's no longer true of us to describe us with these types of terms because now we're united with Jesus. We have a new power at work within us. It's the Holy Spirit who produces holiness in us. So look at the transformation in your own life. And we need to realign our affections to abhor what is evil, as the scriptures say, and to cling to what is good. Again, this is very similar to what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6. For this is a homework assignment. You could read all of chapter 6, 7, and 8 in Romans. So it'll cover everything that's being talked about here. It's the same type of stuff, but it will give you a much uh, bigger perspective as he plays it all out. But in Romans 6, starting in verse 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you desire, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, a helpful illustration comes from John Chrysostom, who was an early church father, Archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. And, and in this concept here from Colossians about what is he talking about, this removal of sin situation we find ourselves in, he compares it to keeping a statue brightly clean and polished after it had already had all of the buildup and the rust scoured off of it. And his point is, is that in regeneration, we've been cleansed. And the reason that the rust of sin keeps growing is because we still live in corruptible bodies. So it's actually a very good illustration. And it's true that we've both been cleansed in Christ of these sins, but it's also true that we keep getting afflicted in our weaknesses from our flesh, although now we're in a situation that is it's considerably lessened because the Holy Spirit is conquering these things in our life. Well, now we get to verse 8. In this list where basically he says, just get rid of it all. Just take it all off. Change your filthy clothes. Put off all sin. And so in verse 8, he says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So those in the first list and those things even in this second list, right, they're all sin. And the apostle is saying, get rid of all of it. And these five attitudes now are, and behaviors are talking about a verbal destruction 
of your neighbor and an attitude in your heart that destroys your neighbor. Maybe these actually hit home closer to us because as G. Campbell Morgan, who was a preacher from the last century, called these, he called this list a list of sins in good standing. In other words, Christians look at that first list and we say, what evil people would do those things? But we look at this second list and we say, well, that's not really that bad. Or, yeah, I'm working on that. And we make excuses for those things. Uh, So we definitely see the first list as just awful, but we tend to accept these second things in the second list as if they're small sins. And we tend to tolerate them in ourselves, and we tend to tolerate them in Christians, and we tend to tolerate them in our churches. So we'll go through these similarly. So anger, as talking about having it as an abiding manner of expression in your life. It's who you are as a person. It's your personality. You're an angry person. Wrath or rage is another translation here. It's talking about outbursts that come out of the inside. In other words, it shows that you have this facade of being a self-controlled person and a responsible person. But if you're given to wrath or rage or outbursts, well, maybe you need to do some soul-searching. Malice is a spiteful attitude. It's harboring ill will against people. Or harboring ill will, let's get very specific, harboring ill will against certain people, very specific people that you could name. That's what malice is. Slander, we know what that is. That's blaspheming other people's names. Or we could just simply say it's just always having something bad to say about people or other people. That's a slanderous person. Abusive speech or filthy speech or abusive or filthy language. There are a lot of translations here from your mouth or lips. This is tearing down people to their face. Even using obscenities to do it or even not using obscenities to do it. That's abusive speech. So we need to ask ourselves the question, are we delighting ourselves in the destruction of our neighbor by our attitudes or by our words? Do we live really like the world? And you know if you are, because the Spirit of God would testify against you right now because the Scriptures have been read in your presence. So if that's the case, then put it to death, as verse 5 tells us to do. So as a Christian, we all need to be asking ourselves, what are we doing to get rid of the sin in our lives? And how do we feel when we read texts like this in the Scriptures, these sins of consumption that we're confronted with, these sins of destruction of our neighbor that we're confronted with? We know they appeal to our flesh. If you deny that, you're in denial. Because we all know the real struggle that we have being in the flesh with these types of things in our life. And so Paul's admonition to put them to death applies to everybody. It's not like you can go through and say, well, I don't have any of that one, check. No, it's we need to really take time and prayer to go through these things with our own heart and our own soul. So here's a helpful passage for us as we think through how to deal with this, and that's from Galatians 5. Uh, 16 and 17. 
and we'll jot that one down, something you'll want to look up later, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, because it talks about why this is still a struggle in our lives as Christians and, and how it could be that way. So he says here, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you want to. That seems so odd, doesn't it? Why would God put us in such a weird position? That we want to do what's right to please Him, but somehow we still can't. And we learned two lessons from this passage in Galatians 5. And the first is, is that the Spirit is very powerful, right, in getting rid of sin in our lives. And as the passage says, we have to keep on praying and working in the power of the Spirit. This passage also teaches us that there's no such thing as instant perfection or instant eradication of sin in our lives. Instead, it's a progressive realization of holiness so we are guaranteed by this passage that we get to struggle our whole life. How exciting, right? Because we get to constantly be in dependence upon Jesus Christ and the Spirit to bring us to that final point of perfection, which we'll get to in a minute. So today, if you're under conviction, confess your sins, receive the forgiveness of Jesus, and continue in the gospel. Another passage for you then would be if your heart is heavy, would be Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Philippians 3, 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained. So this kind of talk from our Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 about getting rid of sin, it's really important to understand that it's directed to the true Christian who's already been converted out of a life of sin. It's true that our new life in Christ is a life of continual renewal and doing away with sin. We have the power of regeneration at work in us so that we can be confident. And that confidence, it's so important to understand, is not in our own power. That confidence is not in our resolve. That confidence is not in some super spiritual experience we had somewhere with somebody at some time. That confidence is in the power of God. It's in the Holy Spirit that indwells us. It's in the gospel. That's the key. And that's the next part of our passage in verses 9 through 11. We're to finish getting rid of sin in our life because we're new people. And we're under renewal by God himself. And so verses 9 through 11 say, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, uncircumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
So the Apostle Paul here continues right away in verse 9. New paragraph, really. And he says, don't lie to each other now that you're a new person. Now, if you read the passage, you think, well, wait a minute. So this sin that he's mentioning now of lying is not in any of the other two lists. Uh, why is it standing here by itself? Is it some kind of an emphasis that the Apostle Paul is making? Maybe it's a way to summarize everything he just talked about, saying that that's all a lie. I think it's set off from the rest and begins a new section because it addresses a characteristic difference between the old self and the new self, the old man, the new man, truth and falsity. It's a principle of being, of living, of motivation being motivated by the truth. So we've been saved and united with Christ, so that means we're of the truth. And so we're to stop sinning and stop lying to one another. We're new people now that we're in Christ. We've stripped off the old man with his bad behavior and put on the new man with his good behavior, if you see. Yes, it's an image of changing clothes. That's what the apostle is putting before us. It's a wonderful image, too. It's metaphorical language of being born again of being regenerated, and of being united to Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that the apostle had just talked about in chapter, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Another theologian, F.F. F. Bruce, brings out the practical meaning of this text with this quotation that I think is very helpful too. He says, you've died with Christ. Act and speak and think, therefore, so as to make it plain that this death is no mere figure of speech, but a real event which has severed the links which bound you to the dominion of sin. In short, be in actual practice what you are now by divine act. I find that very helpful. So brothers and sisters, we have a regenerative power, you see, that's still at work within us to slay the sin in our lives and to attain our salvation at the final day. So back to Romans again. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Romans 8. So then, brothers, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, we see that the confidence and the rest in making progress is in the contentment in Christ, in the power of the Spirit that has been given to us. And in this struggle against sin, we have to realize that we're also under this continual renewal by God. He has great purposes in our life. And, and we look at this last, very last section, the end of verse 10 through 11, talking about the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So God has recreated us as new people, and he's renewing us in his image, which is after the pattern of Jesus Christ himself. That's the image we're being recreated into. That's God's stated goal in our life, 
Romans 8, you go back there again to verse 29. We are being created, recreated into the image of His Son. So exactly what's going on in this renewal, this passage says that there are three things that are going on. We're being renewed in knowledge, we're being renewed into a new image, and we're being renewed without sinful distinctions among us. So as he begins, we're being renewed. There are a lot of different translations here because it's complicated in the original Greek. But we're being renewed to a true knowledge. We're being renewed in knowledge. We're being renewed for knowledge, leading to knowledge, or until we reach knowledge. All of these are acceptable translations. They overlap. And this knowledge is according to the image of the one who created the new man. It's talking about a true knowledge of God, knowing God truly, and knowing His will. That's what he's talking about, which is simple. It's the fullness of knowledge of God. That's what we're being renewed in. You know, it's a progressive thing to know God. But yes, you can know Him truly, but then we continue in our life, our whole life, getting to know Him better. And you know what? Throughout all of eternity, we'll continually grow in our knowledge of God because we'll never fully know all of who He is. He's so great. So the simple admonition, you will, would be to grow in that knowledge of God as He works it in you. And second of all, we're being renewed according to the image or in the image of the one who created Him, talking about the new man. And it immediately draws our attention to, I think, Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning when God created us. And we are even, all of us, though we don't speak Latin today, we're familiar with the phrase imago Dei the image of God, that we are created in God's image. And that's where our mind goes when we read something like that in the Scripture, is back to the beginning. And if he's talking about the image of God here, the reference here would be to the aspect of holiness, of being a moral representative for God. Yet, it's much more than this that the Apostle's talking about in Colossians 3, you see, because he's not taking us back to Eden. He's taking us beyond Eden. And we're being renewed in the image of God as it is in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect man. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this renewal that we're experiencing involves growth in Christ-likeness. So it's growing in knowledge of God. We continually do that. And God is also working within us to make us look more and more like Jesus, to think more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus. And then also, we are being renewed into a life without sinful distinctions, where Christ is seen as all. He is all and is in all. In this last part of the paragraph, In a sense, Paul is returning to the vice list. And he's saying, oh, no, wait, I forgot lying. I also forgot this one. He didn't really forget anything, of course. But he's saying, i got one more thing I want to mention. Don't make distinctions between one another so that you have an excuse to sin against one another. Because that's what we often do, don't we, as people? It's like, we might act one way towards somebody we... Well, we would not act one way towards somebody because we know that that's sinful behavior. But if the person 
comes from a certain background, then we might excuse ourselves for our behavior. And so, in a sense, the apostles really anticipated the argument that he's going to next in verses 12 through 17 when he talks about what does a Christ-like community look like, and we'll talk about that next week. But you see, the church is supposed to be a haven of unity in Jesus Christ. So here's one more point or one more aspect of renewal. In this new humanity in Christ, earthly status distinctions are no longer in force. Remember how he begins at verse 5, put to death what's earthly in you. I like the translation, put to death what's worldly in you. We know how the world acts. So he brings up some distinctions that people make in this time, in this area, between Greek and Jew, that is Gentile and Jew, the circumcised, the uncircumcised. Distinctions between sophisticated and not. So the barbarians are non-sophisticated non-Greeks and the Scythians are wild men who are Greek. So they're not cultured people, slave and free, economic status in the Roman Empire. So maintaining distinctions in the body of Christ between one's Jewishness or non-Jewishness, between one's relationship to the law, between people's nationality or ethnicities or economic positions, to name just a few, that's foolish. And in this passage, we can say it's sinful. You see, union with Christ implies unity in Christ. If we are united to Jesus Christ, that implies that in the church there is to be unity in Christ. Christ is all that matters. That's what he's saying at the end. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. That's all that matters to its members. People that belong to Jesus Christ know that there's nothing else that matters in our relationships to other people is Jesus, other than Jesus Christ. And he is in all. Meaning here, in this passage, he indwells all types of people. That list he just gave you, Jesus Christ through the Spirit indwells all those people. All those types of people. And you know what? Even though they're different than you or different than me or whoever you want to think about right now, if they're a Christian, they have newness of life too. And they're under renewal just like you are. And so this renewal that we're experiencing as a Christian is threefold. Our knowledge of God continually increases. Our personal holiness continues to increase. And our commitment and demonstration of unity in the body of Christ continues to grow. We should be overjoyed at this renewal that God's working in our life and confident that God's power is going to make it happen. We are to know the triumphant power of the conquest so that we can keep on killing sin. God recreated us as new people, and he's renewing us in the image after the pattern of Jesus. So we live day to day, week to week, year to year, month to month, whatever, in progressive conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We live our lives in triumph over sin by the power of the gospel. It just continues to work its way out in our life, and we're continually renewed, and that's the joy. That's what this passage is about. We praise God for this work of His in giving us new life, regeneration, that is, and renewal. He's given us a totally new life in Christ. The scriptures say, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And living out this transformation is what Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11, is all about. 
And so we're supposed to finish getting rid of all the sin in our life, verses 5 to 8, because we're new people in Christ and under renewal by God himself, as verses 9 through 11 tell us. So again, we need to ask ourselves the questions, what's our attitude towards sin in our life? What's our approach of getting rid of it? Does it match the approach the Apostle Paul gives us here in Colossians 3? Don't let there be any sins of good standing in your life or in our life together as a body. What are your vices? Be ruthless with them. Put them to death. Slaughter them in the spirits, if you will. As our passage says in verse 5 and Romans 8 talks about, struggle harder, make greater progress against sin for holiness. But above all, we should be assured this morning that God's going to accomplish this. He's going to accomplish all his good and glorious purposes in our lives. We are his saints, his holy ones, that he's saved in Jesus Christ, and we are being renewed into the image of God. So be encouraged and recollect your conversion and observe your renewal. This is God's work in you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you and pray that you've ordered even our struggle against sin so that it would magnify your glory and your grace and not ourselves because we're always dependent upon you for progress. We praise you, Lord God, that you have ordered this progress in our lives to be shown in our knowledge of you, a growing holiness and a growing unity in the Spirit. We ask that you give us more of this reality. And finally, Lord God, we thank you how you've ordered our progress in such a way that we will gain perfection in Christ. That is your stated goal. You're taking it to us to, us, to it at the end of all, at the end, at the end of the very last day. And we pray that you would give us a strong hope as we look forward to that day. And we pray all these things for Jesus' glory in his church. Amen.